You're listening to Women Transcend. This is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they're able to overcome or transcend. listeners. This is Jennifer Todd. And I'm John Philbeck. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. We are taking on kind of a heavy topic as we are want to do. We're going to be talking about sexual assault survivors and the language that we use when we talk about really survivorship and, and recovery and moving on and how important labels are. So coming up, we have an interview with a researcher who has done some really interesting work around this. But before we get into our interview, let's talk about, let's talk about the magnitude of the issue that we're talking about. So we're talking about sexual assault. So each year, according to RAIN, or the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, 60,000 children were victims of sexual abuse. And that's in the United States, I guess. In the Yes, in the United yeah. States each year. In the general public, Rain reports 321,000 Americans 12 and older were sexually assaulted or raped. Yikes. Just in the last year? Each, Yes. Each year. How often does sexual assault occur in the United States each year? Yikes. Yeah. The majority of sexual assaults, here's a little quiz for you, John. Where do you think the majority of sexual assaults occur? Where um, do they occur? Yeah. So let's say in a public place, in a relative's home, at a school or at or near their house? Hmm. I would have to say maybe at or near their house. Yes. That's that's where people spend yeah, most yeah, of their time. Exactly, yeah. And we know that, that most victims are victimized by someone that they know, right. so, so that makes sense. So yeah. for, 48% are at their home, either sleeping or, you know, living, yeah. doing whatever they do at their home. Yeah. 12% happen in the workplace, which um, has very much been in the news recently. Yes. So just so that's just a little bit on the scope of this problem, but I don't think, honestly, after the the news that anyone should be surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately. Yeah. So nine out of 10 victims of rape are female. Um, so our interview today, as we mentioned, is talking about the labels that we put on people who have been victims of sexual assault. So there are generally, I think we think of a dichotomy. They're either victims or survivors. I think, would you say that, that that is safe to say. That's definitely, those are the labels that I hear a lot, I think. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And there's a lot of baggage attached to both of those words. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, 
and you know, if you say I was a victim of sexual assault, you know, there's a set of sort of stereotypes or there's, um, there's connotations to that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you say I'm a survivor of sexual assault, same thing. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see it's, I don't know who came up with that, but I mean, it's, it sounds a little more positive. I mean, it feels like it's moving in a, in a direction where the person this has happened to is trying to take some yeah, no, that's true. And and that's something that we talk about in our interview with our guest today is that it isn't, an, uh, you know, this clear cut dichotomy. And, you know, women or, or victims or survive, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I don't it's know the hard, word you're using. You know, it's it, it, because we, we use these terms almost interchangeably exact, well, and they really mean something. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, they they may be in a fluid state you know they they may feel like i'm a survivor one day and then you know get triggered by something that's in the news maybe yeah and then uh, retake some of the feeling of being a victim yeah so our guest for today's interview rebecca murphy keith has done a lot of really fascinating research with women who were survivors or victim, um, so who have experienced? Thank you. <laughs> sexual assault is yes, and my fumbling around with this terminology really just highlights how important it is to think about yeah. this, and how important her research is. Yeah, because she comes up with a third term, and I won't, I, I won't be a spoiler, but and actually, it came from the women themselves. Yeah. they they didn't like either victim or survivor. So they came up with a third term and it's, it's very empowering and it's really a positive message. And one of the things that, that Rebecca talks about is this phenomenon that she refers to as post-traumatic growth. And, you know, there's this empowerment or personal growth that can come out of something really awful. And that is what a lot of, people who have been subject to sexual assault prefer to think of themselves not as victim, not as survivor, but this more empowered status. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really important to understand. And especially because friends, we are talking about probably the majority of women. Yeah. And not just the majority, but maybe, you know, I think it's the exception. If you have not been victimized, you are the exception. And I don't want to overplay that or, you know, be overly dramatic. But obviously, we're not talking about everyone has been violently raped, thankfully. But we are hearing more and more about sort of how normalized this jocular behavior that men think is just innocent and playful and and honestly they think that they have the right. Yeah. They have the right. They haven't had the right, but they've taken that right. Yeah. They've they've um they've taken that. And, and Rebecca also does a, a nice job of talking about the history of sexual assault and the terminology victim 
we didn't use that term for people who had suffered sexual assault until the 70s. So it's really fascinating. Her work is fascinating. The topic is so important. And especially now when, you know, hashtag me too, you will know someone who will share something with you. You may be the one who is tweeting hashtag me too. And you need to know that if you choose not to self-identify as a victim or you choose not to self-identify as a survivor, there's another word for you. <laughs> and it's a good, empowering place to be. Yeah. So I would just encourage you to stay tuned for our really enlightening and empowering interview with Rebecca Murphy-Keith coming up next. Coming up next is my interview with Rebecca Murphy-Keith. Rebecca is an independent scholar who has conducted important research on sexual assault. Welcome to Women Transcend Rebecca. Hi, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Yeah, I am glad to have you join us as well. Um, Rebecca is a specialist in the area of gender and communication, and this is sort of a subspecialty of the field of communication that people don't really understand fully and appreciate fully how we communicate about gender. Can you just tell us briefly what gender and communication, what that means to you? Sure. How I combine it is I have a background, a minor in women's and gender studies. Uh, and even though it's not the lead part of my communication research, it influences, it flavors it. So what it means to me is I'm aware that in the culture around us, we view gender, most people view gender in binary terms as like men and women or masculine and feminine. And so it's just an awareness that our reality is sort of divided that way. And within that, women have certain expected roles and men have certain expected roles in their speech, in what they wear, in how they view themselves and others. And so I'm interested in how these cultural views about gender influence and impact our communication and our interpersonal relationships. Uh -huh. And so that's where it ties into looking at child sexual abuse or sexual harassment and issues like that. Uh-huh. And so this is a topic that has been very much in the news lately. And I will just say, finally, because, you know, this is something that I think that a lot of women knew was going on. And the fact that it is now getting some media attention about how pervasive it really is. I don't think mm -hmm. women are nearly as surprised as men are, honestly. Right, right. And the initial focus of my research was women who experienced sexual abuse as children. But the reason why I want to um, expand it beyond like what we're going to talk about today is because there are so many overlaps 
in terms of gender communication and the language available between women who experience sexual abuse as children and women who experience sexual violation, whether it be assault or rape or whatever, as adults. Uh huh. So there are connections between them, and the connection, in large part, is the gender constructs and the language used to describe the people. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Well, let's get into this. So your original research was about survivors of... Adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Okay. And your findings around communication or, or um, language, tell us about that. I'm, I'm going to take it like a slight step back because sure. the motivation for the research really plays a part in shaping the findings you know, and the outcome. So when I started it, I did a pilot study at the University of North Carolina Greensboro when I was getting my master's in communication studies. I started it from a, a personal place. So I experienced sexual abuse as a child and by two different perpetrators. And so getting past a point and, and looking back or looking at how I view myself and how I describe myself, I, I saw like the options out there. There's victim uh-huh. and there was survivor. And I didn't really like either of those. And so I was wondering, am I the only one that feels this way? about those ways to describe people who had these experiences. Wow. Uh-huh. And so that that was the inspiration for the study. Uh-huh. That is just so, I mean, it's such a, a, again, this binary choice, am I this or am I that? It seems like such a simple thing, but that is so powerful. Okay, sorry to interrupt you, but oh, no, keep going, please. Oh, no, it's fine, please, it's fine. Um, and so yeah. when I went out to do the research and I connected with women, one of the key things that I put in my recruitment was that it was not about the damage done, though I wasn't negating that. It wasn't about recounting the abuse because there's plenty of research out there that says, you know, when you have these experiences, here are the, you know, the results, like the outcomes, the damage that it can do. My focus was on what happens after that. How do you, as an adult, see yourself beyond the initial circumstances? So mine was a forward thinking and empowering project. Great. And so the women who volunteered to work with me said that that was a major draw for them because they felt that the majority of writing, reporting, cultural conversations around it was all about the permanent damage that are are done to people who have these experiences. And it's just all about the negativity. And, And they really resisted that. So they were very happy to be part of the project. And so the uh, findings that came out of it related to the two dominant terms of victim and survivor. One, the majority of participants didn't like labels at all. Uh huh. They had a hard time putting one on themselves. And they didn't like, for the most part, none of them liked the victim label. Sure. None of them. Uh huh. And most of them felt at least uncomfortable with the survivor label. Mm-hmm. And so the reasons for that go, you can go into some feminist research and like the, the historical use of victim. So it was introduced in the 1970s 
so that people would take violence towards women, particularly sexual violence, towards females seriously. Ah. So, you know, sexual violation of someone is a crime. Mm-hmm. The person who it is done to is the victim. Uh-huh. They should have redress. And, you know, the perpetrator should be held accountable. And so it was introduced with that aim. But the, the interesting thing about language is that it's it's not static. It's uh-huh. always developing. So the the cultural use of and interpretation uh, around the word victim took on the connotation of uh, powerless and weak. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, you might get legal redress, but now you're, you know, weak, damaged goods. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so it lost sort of some of its cultural power there. And that's when there was a shift in the language towards survivor. Interesting. You know, you survived it. You know, you lasted beyond it. They didn't end you, you know, yeah. whatnot. And so there's still a lot of cultural capital uh, value seen in the word survivor. In fact, seriously, you can't look at the literature out there without finding victim and survivor. Uh huh. The problem is finding anything beyond that. Yeah. So for me, in the interviews, in the research, I shared some of my story as they shared some of their story. It was reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of the feminist sensitivity in the research was that we were co-creators. We were co-researchers. So I shared my discomfort with the word survivor. And for me, to have survived means you're simply, you're just, you're alive. Uh Uh-huh. It didn't kill you. Yeah. You can be alive. You can be malfunctioning. You can be an abuser yourself. So for me, the power is limited. Uh Uh-huh. And I wanted something more. But what else is there? Yeah. And, And so... Um, it's not that it's impossible to, I called it moving beyond. Uh-huh. That's sort of the, the phrase. Uh, another word that's useful that I, I think most people responded to was thriver. Oh, okay. Because I'm more than those experiences. And that was the sentiment uh, of my participants. Some of them described themselves as a warrior. Some as, you know, an empowered, say, African-American woman so their descriptors and envisionings of themselves were a lot different than what the language allowed. So it's not impossible to get to that beyond place with the language that exists. It's just a lot harder. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about these terms, victim sort of shaking that term, that really takes a lot of work, actually, I would think, because some people might get stuck in that in that role. Absolutely. And also in Survivor, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So this was one of the the other uh, key findings is a lot of people, there's so much invested in the labels themselves that there can be sort of an over-identification and you can get stuck in either victim or survivor. And so one thing that the participants almost as a whole commented on was that, I mean, they all knew people who were stuck in that victim role, who played, if you will, the perpetual victim, and it got them, you know, sympathy and consideration, but they also didn't do more with their lives. Uh huh. They were sort of living a limited life because, like, living that victim identity is limiting. Yeah. 
And so while they had sympathy for the women's experiences, they were very frustrated with people who held on to that and didn't choose to develop themselves. Okay. But what they what they also noted, though, is accepting at some point that you were a victim was very important in, in the process. So you have to admit at some point when you've had something like that happen to you, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything to deserve it. Uh-huh. The other person, the responsibility was in the other person's hands. And particularly with child sexual abuse, right? There was yeah. a severe abuse of power. So you have to sort of, at one point, I was a victim. A crime was committed against me. But then, you know, seeing, okay, what else is beyond that? Yeah. And then, you know, with Survivor, a lot of people uh, say, adopt the label and say, I survived it. And I'm a survivor and I'm empowered. But maybe they don't go to counseling or they don't work through some of the issues that do come out of that type of violation they think the label will do the work for them. Uh-huh. And it doesn't. Yeah. And so certain uh, self-views and self-communication is damaging. And then communicating with others and interpersonal relationships isn't maybe as healthy, perhaps, as it should be. And so that's why even Survivor uh, can be limiting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, because with either term, victim or Survivor... There's work that you have to do to move on. But then that begs the question, move on to what? I mean, like you said, there's not a a word to move on to. (laughs) Right. And that was the whole thing. It would just it blew my mind that there's, you know, nothing else. And so thriving, um, the reason um, why I like it personally, like I would never insist anybody else adopt that label. Because it's not necessarily, it's not a fixed label to a person. Uh-huh. It is a state of being. It is a continual process. Yeah. To thrive, to be thriving, you must be doing something. If a plant is thriving, that means it's getting all the nutrients and so on and so forth that it needs. Uh-huh. And it doesn't end. The process and growth continues. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's why I sort of like it. Um, and the women I, I talk to... So far, it's about 25 women, and I'm hoping to do eventually, you know, some more research to look at the journey, Uh to look in more detail, like at the process. So even without the helpful, assistive language, how did you move from like what, what, what was the overall process? Because one of the things I discovered in my academic research was that in describing like the the healing process or, you know, how people would get into a healthy life, there were a lot of prescribed steps, like, you know, like a 12 step, you know, sort of like that applying the Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. principle to uh, having been sexually abused. The problem is healing from trauma is not a linear process. Yeah. It's not a step one, step two, step 12, and you're done and don't have to worry about it again. It's not only not flexible enough to allow people to to do what they need to do, it gives a false sense of completion. Okay. Yeah. Now, the other thing that, that comes to mind when you talk about moving from victim label to survivor label to thriver label or or whatever you choose to self-identify, 
I, I don't think that either of us in any way mean to imply that if you aren't able to shake the feeling of being a victim, that you are to blame in any way. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's entirely, oh, and uh, another problem with victim is when, like, other people apply it to you and you don't want it. Yeah. There's also cultural pressure, like, okay, you've been a victim, but that was, like, 20 years ago when you were a kid. Like, get over it already. Yeah. That's absolutely not what I'm describing or encouraging here. It's more of exposing the additional options or possibilities. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you don't have to stay in victim if you don't want to. And some people just haven't done the work that maybe is needed for them to feel comfortable in saying, putting a box around it and saying, that was then, I am now. Yeah. And, And that's fine because it is a process and no one can or should rush that process. And it's an, you know, I would think it's an experience that becomes a fabric, a part of the fabric of you. Right. And that's one of the other things. So in the research, all of the women I asked them, one of the questions was, how much is the sexual abuse as a child? How much is that a part of your everyday life? And one of the things one person responded, and it and it sat me back and made me think it's one of the things I love about research, is she said, it's every day a part of my life. And she didn't adhere to the, you know, she didn't, wasn't holding on to the victim label. And I'm like, okay, so explain, please. And she said, it's not like I can erase what happened in the past, but instead of it being an unabsorbed, um, I don't know, node, like, Uh you know, a lump in the skin, this is my analogy, it's sort of diffused through the fabric of who she is. Uh It takes its place alongside, you know, if you've been in a car accident, if uh, a loved one, you know, has died, like each of those things, you know, causes you some trauma, but they aren't the crux or core of your identity. Yeah. If you've been in a car accident, you might still be a little bit, you know, freaky about somebody else who's driving a little crazy. Uh And that's natural. Sure. And so having, you know, that type of violation when you're a child is certainly as an adult going to shape how you view the world, how you interact with others, but it doesn't have to do so negatively. And so that's one of the final and most beautiful things that came out of my research. And I was happy to find it wasn't just me. But there's a term in the literature, in trauma literature, called post-traumatic growth. And what that means is instead of staying in like certain maladaptive patterns, people who experience this have stronger interpersonal relationships, are more sensitive to power imbalances and dynamics, they're more social activist inclined they get to a point where they start to challenge the status quo that created the experiences in the first place. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the women in some way did this, whether they were social workers, whether they were lawyers doing pro bono for women who were raped, whether they were like teachers, artists, all of them Uh were doing work with people to either um, challenge or aid people who had those experiences. Wow, that's interesting. So they were using that painful history 
to use as a platform to raise themselves and then to help raise others? To help others. It was used as a positive. Uh So taking a negative and turning it into a positive, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Wow, what a great finding. So, wow, really powerful research and really important because as we are finding out, this is a really common, unfortunately, this is a common thing for especially girls, but girls and women and girls and boys to experience different levels of violation as children. And what we can do to help them think about that experience and then move beyond the victim label, whatever label survivor, whatever, to just have it be a healthy part of the fabric of them. It's there. It will always be there. But for it to be a healthy part of the fabric of them, like the post-traumatic growth, that's a positive that comes out of a very negative. And and I have to say, you know, it's, it's not easy. And all of the women I, I talked to would say it is absolutely not easy. Um, and there are times where you feel like you're absolutely um, not gonna make it. They're, they're very dark periods. But for a lot of them, after the dark periods, there was sort of a surge in their growth and an improvement in their overall quality of life. How they described the growth process, and how I sort of articulated it when I wrote it up is so like I said, the healing isn't a linear process. It's more like a spiral. And so you have problems perhaps like with trust. And then as you get older, you might trust a couple of people here and you know you make some friends and then you have to work through some levels of trust, say, when you go into like intimate relationships. And so you go around and each time you have to deal with issues of trust, it's in a slightly different way, Uh but it's still sort of tied to that past experience. And so that's why the linear healing programs or steps don't work. Hopefully it's a spiral that goes upward. Ascending. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, this is really interesting and I think it's really important. It's, I mean, at its very core, it's kind of a a simple concept, but when you unpack everything that's there, as you have done so eloquently, there's a lot to think about. And even if you have not been victimized, to think about how we view those who have and the labels that we put on them, you know, whether they choose that label or not, it's really important for us to acknowledge that experience, and then assist if we can in the recovery and moving beyond words to Mm -hmm. just being people that have had experiences. Right. When I uh, talked to the women that I worked with for this, they said that they personally, all the women they knew had been impacted by uh, some sort of sexual abuse or molestation as a child or uh, by assault or rape as an adult. They did not know any women who had not been violated in some way. Uh-huh. And you know, I wanted to mention that because like, one of the things I want to further explore is the idea of what if this type of sexual violation and 
statistically speaking, happens more to women than men, but men need a place at the table to express what's happened to them too. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, what if this violation of females in our society is the norm rather than the aberration? Yeah. And I think that that is what we're seeing come out when women and girls, women, feel comfortable enough and are given the opportunity to voice their experience. It does seem that it is the exception not to have had this experience. Right. So the whole Me Too. Yeah. Sort of movement or. Yeah. yeah. I'm like thinking mission program. Like the, the purpose of that is to show people, I think largely men, yeah. uh, that it is more pervasive than they think it is. And I mean, there is momentum, but the potential problem is that it's just people talking. Yes. Um, yeah. Because there have been periods in history, you know, big scandals like this famous person um, was raped and it came out and this person experienced that sort of violation and people express outrage and then they move on. Yeah. And so it has to be more than talk. And that was one of the things that came out in my research too in talking to these women is there's so much talk and there's not enough doing. Yeah. The, the hope is that this momentum, my hope is personally, that it will encourage more doing, particularly on the part of men, whether or not they have, you know, a sister or a daughter or a wife. You don't need those to be exactly. a responsible male. You can still challenge what it is that encourages other men to mistreat women. Yeah. Um. So I'm, I'm hoping that there will be more momentum to challenge this because it's I think, really woven into the fabric of our culture. And I think to challenge what is going on, that means for men to challenge other men when they see it. Exactly. Yeah. And clearly that hasn't been happening. And, you know, as we have seen in the news currently, you know, the men that have come out and sort of begrudgingly have admitted that they were aware and, specifically Harvey Weinstein I'm talking about. Right, um, yeah. It was sort of an open secret, and everybody knew about it, that this was the character that he was. But nobody, mm -hmm. none of the men did anything, and these were, some of them were in powerful positions that they could have. Mm -hmm. And there's no excuse not to do, even if you're not in a position of power, there's no excuse. Right. But yeah, and that's like a whole, like why, when I, 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 posted on Facebook like a little bit of a rant about the, the Weinstein thing. There are reasons why people would, wouldn't want to admit that this type of a violation um, toward females is the norm. But that could be like a totally separate podcast. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but people are, are, I think, vested in denial because admitting it means they need to do something. Yeah, that's true. And invested, honestly, in keeping women as victims, because then if women are victims, then that puts, by necessity, men in a position of power. Right. In either protecting or perpetuating. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, this has been a fascinating discussion and lots of takeaways for me to just ponder. Really powerful information. And thank you for doing this important research. This is something that it's sort of the in plain sight thing that 
nobody talks about, nobody addresses in a real meaningful way. But these are our children. When, when we, we talk about stopping it, let's stop it before it happens. And that means addressing it when now with our children to mm-hmm. keep them safe. And of course, mm-hmm. ob- obviously keeping women safe too. But um, it would be really nice if we had a generation of kids that grew up safely. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Women Transcend to share your important research and your experience. And I really thank you for this great work that you're doing and for sharing with us. Not a problem. It was a pleasure to share the research. You know, it's never actually a pleasure to say, yeah, all of this is happening yeah. is bad. Yeah. Uh, but certainly to, I guess, spread the word that there are alternate ways of looking at it, of looking at oneself which gives a little bit more hope. Yeah, definitely. No, these are conversations we need to have. So I appreciate you starting this one. Thank you so much for joining. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. If you enjoy our podcast, an easy way you can help support us is to tell at least one friend about our show and how they can find us. You would be surprised how many people don't know how to find a podcast. So grab their phone, find a show, and subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast yourself so that you can be sure you won't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player each week. A big thanks to Rebecca Murphy-Keith for today's interview. And as always, to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook at Women Transcend. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode.